Welcome to the Splinters Podcast from the team on the bench. Community Radio's leading no-holds-barred Friday night sports show. Available online and replayed on Triple H 100.1 FM. Now, here's your host, the wise man, Matt Mears. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Splinters the Bench podcast here on Triple H 100.1 FM. Streaming live on the web at triplehfm.com.au and available on all your favorite podcasts, the, the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, podcast.com, tune-ins, and all the bad podcast sizes. Well, we don't discriminate here. I am the wise man, Matt Mears, and welcome to our special uh, look at the departure of Holden, the future of the Supercar Series. Splinters, as always, is brought to you by the action attraction of the North Shore, Magpies Waitara. I said, another big podcast here where we go through the... Um, world of motor racing, particularly here in Australia. Um, it's one of those championships that's um, one of the most underrated in, in the eyes of us, plus many others, the Supercars Championship compared to what's competed with around the world. Um, we've obviously heard the big announcements over this year of, of what's happening with manufacturers and what's happening with um, the future of this sport. So we thought it was important that we'd have a look at this championship. What's cap- What does it mean now and what does it mean for later on? And for a big, important episode like this, we need a pit crew that's going to help break down what's going on. And when you need a pit crew, you look at this man. He is the technical director, chief analyst here of Triple H Sports. He's also the podfather, the godfather he is the Raging Bull, Anthony Caruso. Anthony, welcome to Splinters. A big episode here for us with Supercars on the Minds. Thank you, Mirzi. Good evening to you. Good evening to everyone here. It was a wonderful uh, invitation from yourself, of course, the principal of this great team. So <laughs> cop Don't tell Tony Lord. that. Oh, don't, don't tell the Lord Mayor either. Um, but but Boy, of course, when hear it, this. But when we, when of course we do talk about motor racing, you and I, you and I, along with you know maybe Dom Rizzuto, um, you know we are the doyens of of motor racing within the team, and I have to say within the realms of Australian motor racing, this year is a sad, sad year indeed. Well, it certainly is. Um, obviously, V8 Supercar it, it is the the premier motor racing in Australia and New Zealand. It, it, when you look at the pinnacle without going overseas, that is where the Australian public looks. But on, on this show, we're going to look at the announcement that was made on the 17th of February. Geez, that seems like a long time ago, where General Motors, who are the company that owns the Holden brand, said that they would be retiring the brand by the end of the year. So um, it's a brand that's existed since 1856 and has um, been involved in motor vehicle manufacturing since 1908. Um, As said, Holden's been uh, involved in motor racing since 1986. 1968. Jeez, it's a long time, isn't it? It's a history that will reach 52 years by the end of this year. So in particular, we're going to have an impact, uh, have a look at the impact on what what it will mean to the championship that has been spilt all around the blue oval and the red line, Holden versus Ford. But just before we do that, it is some it is a sad thing to see just the demise of Holden 
as a total brand. My last four cars, my current car, are all Holdens, and it's that way for a reason. It, it's just so just such a shame that we won't be seeing that that line on the front of any new cars coming out. It's iconic. It, it is an iconic brand. It is, it is a brand that is quintessentially Australian. So many Australian superstars have attached their name in some way, shape, or form to Holden. I mean, you, you think of the – we don't need – you can mention the, the obvious ones in motor racing, the likes of Peter Brock, Craig Lowndes, uh, Jamie Wincutt, Mark Skate. But then the people outside of motor racing who have attached their names to Holden over the years, a lot of – Rugby League has done it. Greg Norman, of course, Holden used to be one of his biggest sponsors. And it is it is a brand that it built prestige and respect all around the world. And certainly when we get into the first part, you'll see how strong the Holden brand actually was internationally. Well, that's the thing. Even though that Holden is part of that bigger General Motors conglomerate, which had brands all around the world, it's just Holden was iconic and uh, – it is just a shame to see it it um it, it disappear from the landscape. But um we'll look at part one. There's big three parts to this episode. We'll get to part one. How did Holden get here? I said it was the beginning of the end for Holden can be traced back to the two thousands, which was the end of the the last great golden period for the Red Lion. Um at the start of the decade locally, it was the biggest car company in Australia with a twenty seven point five percent share. Although that dropped by 15.2% by 2006 and it lost that number one position to Toyota. This impact in, um, initially sheltered, particularly with the profit losses around 2006 to 2007 with the strong performance of the VT followed by the VX Commodore. And I said there, there's two very iconic cars in the Holden lineup. And the runaway success of the relaunched Holden Monaro, oh, that is a pretty car, which saw the uh, solid sales in the UK and the USA. So that that goes back to what you're saying, um, Caruso, about the the overseas, where they were rebadged, say the Vauxhall Monaro or um, the Chevy Camaro. Everybody the Pontiac, knew they were holding the Pontiac, Pontiac GTO was the rebadge Monaro, and uh, yeah, and yeah, we only need to you only need to look at the impact that it had over in the UK in particular when Jeremy Clarkson from Top Gear named the Vauxhall Monaro um, one of the best cars of the decade. Yeah, but well, you, that, you, That's you, no you mean saw, feat. No, it isn't. And you saw him use it on Top Gear. I've, I remember the, the, the segment on Top Gear vividly. I've seen it more than a number of times over the, over the years. And he just loved the car just for its simple, simplicity it wasn't it wasn't um as well equipped as some of the ones in that in that that it rivaled but it had the power and it was just fun and and that's sort of what got it over with with Clarkson because there wasn't all these driver aids coming on trying to get him to slow down or stop drifting or whatever but it was just a good fun kind of drive well, the other thing, the other two things he commented about was the simplicity of the drive itself. You felt like nothing was overriding exactly what you wanted to do. If you wanted to go fast, if you wanted to drive sideways, it would let you do that. The other thing he said was, and this is, this is a big surprising thing that people don't pay enough credit for, he actually states how much room there is for a two-door sports coupe in the Monaro. He said you could quite easily fit four adults in the Monaro. Of course. Which is a big call. And a well, decent boot. 
Yeah, well, that, that was what I, that was going to be my point is with a lot of those two CD cars, you either get the big boot or you get someone maybe a, a five year old could sit in the back seats. But with Monaro, you got legroom plus boot space, which is just unheard of in in a car in that bracket. And he also said the other thing he stated about it was that for the power output of the Monaro, it was dollar for dollar better value than a BMW M5. Like you get the same power output for about half the price. And that's a hard thing to say because I can tell you having having a BMW M car is is up there on the list of my sort of bucket lists of cars I want to own when uh, someone finally discovers splinters in offices or million-dollar contracts. But um, I tell you, to, to put it up there with, with, with a car like that is just – I don't think – I can't think of much better praise. So, But well, here's the surprise. Here's the surprise yeah. as well. The luxury models of the Holdens is the next point. Well, that's what I was going to get along too. It said that the Caprice saw international sales as value-for-money alternatives for the big com cars that Parliament's – um, carry all over the world, um, while the Monaro, the Commodore, were being sold to the U.S. state governments as highway patrol vehicles. So, as you said before, with the with the Monaro showing that it could be the same as um, the BMW M series, it was showing that that, that the Caprice could be a um, a viable alternative to some of, the, some of those luxury vehicles, your Mercedeses of the world. Yeah, exactly. And again, you're doing it with with a car that could put out an equivalent power output at a, on a budget. Like, what's not to love about that? Oh, I I don't know. But as I said, you um you can't go past some of those cars. And uh, as I said, once you saw those um once you saw those um those cars sort of go in there, Holden did have a bit of a lull in their sales once the VY and X and the v, VZ Commodores came along. I don't know too much about that. I had a VY Commodore and I loved the thing, but maybe I'm just in, I maybe I'm just in a, in a small bucket there. No, it was, you know what it was? It was the, they felt that the VY Commodore and then the VZ were too Americanized. The, the thing they loved about the VX Commodore, it was a unique look. It was a little bit more rounded. It had a little bit of, el- of, subtle elegance about it whereas the vy and the vz set aesthetically was very american but then the next model afterwards corrected in a big way and you went and hold went back to doing what they did best yeah there is something about the ve um as said if i go back in time i I would love to have gotten a ve after i sold off my vy but uh i tell you that that vy will always have a special place in my heart i can tell you that right now but um I said, with the international long life of the VE Commodore was cut short in 2008 with the onset of the, the GFC, the global financial crisis, when General Motors were bailed out by the US government who put in severe sanctions to the company as requirements of the bailout. Most painful of all was that any GM-branded car being imported into the US needed to cease and would only use locally GM-produced cars from the US. This killed the highly profitable export market that Holden had developed. I think that in the end, Holden would never recover from. And that's just true because you saw what Holden's did in the US. Once they had to build all those locally in the US, it just, yeah, that, that was the end for some of those pretty brilliant cars. And the problem you have, and people don't realize it, that they, they 
is the link between the performance of the company itself and the performance of the motorsport it's um as well mm. when one was withholding if one was performing if the business was performing well the motor race was performing really well this was a golden really this was a golden period for holden and it was only punctuated to a certain extent through the rise of Marcus Ambrose, who dragged Ford and Stone Brothers kicking and screaming into um, touring car championships. But apart from that, it was wall-to-wall Holden, especially Holden's – you might remember Holden's dominance of the Bathurst 1000, where I think they won – where the, the winning car for eight years in a row was a Holden. Yeah, it was it was a time it was the time to be a, a Holden fan in the two thousands. You could see the success of HRT. Ford tried to replicate that with with FPR Ford Performance Racing. They had Glenn Seaton, who was a former champion. They tried to they they even poached Craig Lowndes. They tried to have that that dominant team in there, but they could never really get anywhere up to the mark that HRT could. As you said, with Marcus Ambrose and then with Russell Ingle, Stone Brothers flew the Ford flag for those three years in 2003, four and five, I believe, um, was the three years that they won the championship. But when you have Ford pumping all their resources into FPR, it took the Stone Brothers to get them a win. It's just showing that, that, that what dominance Holden had when their flagship team were the team to beat and they even had to build a second team with Kmart Racing and then um, later HSV Racing with, with the likes of Rick Kelly and Garth Tander. The, the, the HRT essentially had four cars out on the grid that were beating everyone else. And don't forget, don't forget, you had the support teams that were the other, the privateer teams that were actually highly competitive for Holden at the time. And of course, I'm referring to Gary Rogers Motorsport and Brad Jones Racing. Like Gary Rogers were, you know, used to punch so far above their weight, it wasn't funny. Oh, and, and as I said it was a shame to see Gary Rogers leave um, Supercars at the end of last year. They they have that little bit. They they they're, they're the quintessential Aussie team, aren't they? They they battle from behind. They they punch above their weight. Probably Ebris is the one at the moment. Um, with Davy Reynolds is is probably the team of the moment where. They're, they're sort of they're underfunded compared to some of the other top teams. They they don't have the 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 the, the equipment, the um, the budgets that those bigger teams have. But you saw with their um, documentary on the inside line this year that um, they get all that support because they are the underdog, and that's what Holden has as well. That yes, they had the teams out in front their privateers could really um, hold their own and punch above their weight and, and gather that fan support. Absolutely. And, you know, with the killing of the export market, obviously um, it's going to deliver a downturn in manufacturing, you can imagine, as well, as a result. Yeah. Well, I said uh, uh, manufacturing um, with longer – it's always going to be a, a problem when there's a downturn from that – from that export, and then when you cu- when you couple that with an increase in labour costs initially, um, resulted in all four major manufacturers in Australia, Holden, Ford, Toyota, and Mitsubishi, competing with for their own government funding in order to keep their their um, operations afloat. So it's gone from being that we're being successful, and then overseas to governments having to bail out overseas and and take part of our way that that's had a knock-on effect and um, the Australian government had to stand in as well. 
yeah, but unfortunately, the problem you had with the Australian government coming in and, and attempting to bail out the companies was that it was having absolutely no impact. And you know, I think that the, the, the disgraceful moment of it was when Ford, who had just received a $103 million bailout from the Australian government, announced that they were going to pull out, and that was six months after receiving that money. Um, and that really drove the government to, after that to go, well, you know what, that's the way you're going to act. We're not going to bail you out anymore. Yeah, well, as I said, Mitsubishi was the first one to, to pull out very early in the piece. But then, yeah, after they got that bailout, Ford announced that they were pulling out um, of the country, which is which just a shame. But um, after that, with, with so little um, being made in Australia, that... Um, all the all the part production costs and and everything like that that would be coming from third parties just absolutely skyrocketed without the demand behind it, leaving just Holden and Toyota there to fight the good fight for Australia. But then they also had to begin winding down their manufacturing operations um, when the government funding was announced that it would end in 2013. So. It was one of those things. It was just a spiralling effect. One, one, once one pulls out, once two pulls out, costs skyrocket, and it just doesn't make sense for um, them to com- to keep manufacturing in Australia as much as we want them to. And, and it's a shame as well because what we, what we have to remember is that uh, the the basis of motor racing within Australia was very much around. We were the, one of the biggest fans of the concept of touring cars. Um, which I guess leads us into the next segment and really this idea that you could go into a dealership, buy a car, and then race it the next day. Well, that was the old adage was um, was win the race on Sunday. You get you sell the cars out the showroom door on a Monday. I am the wise man, Matt Mears. We have the raging bull, Anthony Caruso, here as well. We're talking about the, the downturn in supercars, the demise of Holden, what that's going to mean for the future, and Anthony... So far in that first segment, we've just seen what's happened on the manufacturing side. And I can tell you, when it when it comes down to dollars and cents, how it has been for them currently, it just doesn't help the, the racing side of things, does it? Well, it's really hard for the, for the uh, major manufacturers to actually provide support for, for all, just all of the teams, not just the factory team. And when you do that, you're left to teams to to support, to lead to their own devices in terms of ensuring that they can put out a competitive car. And, and hence why it's important to really understand the context of why this is happening. Because if you don't have the support from the factory itself, mm. then it's very hard to maintain a competitive nature within the sport. Uh, it, it certainly is because you, you more than just the, the money support, the, the manufacturing support, um, as we know with most things these days, um, sponsorship money is gold, and if you can put your sponsorship money into a few other pots rather than having to pay full price on parts, etc., then um, that's certainly going to um, contribute to a winning team. But we, we, we've discussed in that first segment about how Holden got to where it is currently and, and the, the shape of car manufacturing here in Australia over the, the last 50-odd years. It's be reminisced for us not to discuss the changing face of what was early, what was in the beginning, the Australian Touring Car Championship, which which evolved into the V8 Supercars, um, now is the International Supercar Series. Um, it, it's hard to believe that it started all the way back in 1960, so we're looking at um, 60 years ago. 
and it was a, a competition that was running a true production car spirit, being like, as we said, that the car could be purchased from the dealership floor. It would be exactly the same one as um, you would see everyone being able to buy and, and drive on the roads themselves, which, which lent to that win on Sunday, buy, um, sell on Monday premise. Um, and as I said, they could buy, you could buy your car, a couple of tweaks, and be really ready to race the next day. The golden period of the, the, a, the ATCC was uh, the 70s and 80s, which saw the development of the original Group C competition before the inclusion of Group A. And obviously, they are, um, they are technical regulations. We won't go too much into those, um, but... Um, the main competition was to be the Group C, um, the local production car competition that would be split between two litres and eventually increased to three litres and the Opens, 3B and 3A, um, respectively. The Opens would eventually become Group A, allowing for international competitors to enter alongside the likes of Holden and Ford, which included Mazda, Volvo, BMW, Nissan, and the introduction of the Ford Sierra Codsworth. Boy, oh, they were geez, fast. What a, what a car that was, the Ford Sierra Codsworth. Of course, um, a lot of people will remember the day that um, Dick Johnson, uh, with his privateer car, after hitting a rock that was thrown on the onto the track by a fan, had to go through a very public um, raise of money. Uh, a lot of people it was don't crowdfunding, know. but 1980s style. It wasn't like you could go on a website and just... Uh, Click away 20 bucks. This was old school fundraising. Yeah, exactly. Crowdsourcing the funds indeed. And, um, and of course, the, the masterstroke they ended up doing was he dumped the original Falcon and went for the Sierra Cosworth as a massive gamble. And, boy, howdy did that pay off. It, it certainly did. Obviously, he was driving the Falcons back in the 80s when he did um, hit the rock. It is a famous, famous touring car story that um, will probably be told to the end of time. But um, once we saw um, once we saw all those entering the competition, it was the threat of Holden pulling out that Camps decided to change the formula again. So the engine had to be a five liter pushrod V8 entry, um, especially in the wake of the Nissan introducing their their Skyline, which um, we all knew as Godzilla. And I remember Gibson Motorsport, Mark Scaife and Jim Richards racing these things back in the day. They're almost unbeatable. Especially, especially in the wet, because the the two things they had in their favour was that it, instead of having the big lumbering V8, it was a uh, turbocharged V uh, inline four, and it was the cars were all wheel drive, so the handling was something incredible. So Nissan were Nissan were. You know, to a, to a certain extent, pulling down the pants of Holden and Ford, and this was after BMW, like the likes of BMW and Volvo, and it, and I have to mention there's one there's one team I forgot we forgot to mention in there, Jaguar as well, because of course Walkinshaw Racing originally entered Australia running their very own line Jaguars. Well, that was the thing with the old Group A, Group C regulations is that that was what was being raced overseas, so bit like f1 back in the day where they'd have the main f1 championship in europe rather than having all the different races around the world they'd have a, a sort of summer series or winter series for europe and they would come and race those cars in australia under the same regulations back in the day you could 
almost run the British Touring Car Championship, then come out to Australia and run pretty much the same sort of cars in um, in Australia on Australian tracks in a different competition. We saw a little bit of that in the 90s with the Super Touring competition where the B, the, the BTCC cars would come out and race at Bathurst against the Australian cars. So once we sort of moved from that from that group A group C where it was a free for all in terms of manufacturers and Holden got their way with the 5 liter category that would become V8 supercars it was almost the death of all of the um the imports the the manufacturers and that's how we really started this Holden V4 rivalry and certainly you mentioned the super, the Australian Super Tourers which went for quite a few years after the um, after the spin-off into the V8 Supercar Series. And for a couple of years, the Super Tourers really gave the V8 Supercars a run for its money, even to the point where the um, the Super Tourers actually had the naming rights to the V8, to, of course, the, the Crown Jewel or the lot, the Bathurst 1000. Oh, there's a little bit more to do it with it than that, yes. Yeah. But um, for for a while, they, it was the Super Tourers that would be racing the 1000 race on that on that iconic weekend in October, and then the um, the V8s would have to do it in November um, yeah. as the final round of their championship. But that was the thing with the Super Tourers because their regulations were so closely based with the British Touring Car Championship. They could bring out all their cars and race against them. I always remember there was like the the Ricard Rydells and all the big ones. I think it was the the Volvo team was huge in. in um, oh, Paul Rad Paul Radis What got Paul Radisich into um, mm. racing in Australia again? Yeah, it was was his time in that as well. But you could also bring those cars out, and if, if it had a big year in in British racing, but then was not needed. You could buy it and race it in the Australian Championships afterwards, and that's what you saw a lot of ha- lot of times happening in the eighties. The, the the you you mentioned the Dick Johnson um, Sierra Cotsworths. They were British Touring Car Championships, if I remember rightly, but they were certainly raced in a different championship before he got his hands on them um, to race out here. But um, once they had that big change of regulations, they went to V eight supercars, or well, as they would become. A couple of years later, but from '93, what's when the new regulations came in? That was that was the birth of Holden V form. That was the birth of the five liter category, and it was sort of that was the moment that supercars branched off from the rest of the world. And they would say the the organisers can what became cams would would say that they reacted largely um, because the fans wanted a traditional Holden V four. Um, battle out and to a certain extent you kind of have to agree with it because the, a lot of you will remember the reaction from the fans when Jim Richards and Mark Scaife won that infamous Bathurst 1000 um, the one where uh, <laughs> the one where Jim Richards announced a few expletives on the uh, on the podium I remember that one well they always drag that up every year yeah but um, yeah, that was a it was an incredibly negative reaction. It wasn't just to the fact that Jim Richards and Mark Scaife had won the race under under controversial circumstances, but it was a very negative response to Nissan. They 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 hated Nissan, and that was really the end of it. Yeah, it wasn't their traditional. It wasn't what it wasn't what the Australian public was used to. And you can't fault Gibson, and you can't fault the drivers for wanting to find. The best car within the regulations that was going to give that was going to let them win races, and uh, that's what they did. Um, but at the end of the day, um, Holden and and the rest got their wish. 
They went to the the Holden V form. They went to the the, the five liter V8 supercar formula, and I said with the strength of the re- of the TV revenue that we got behind the V8 supercars brand as it became in 1997, it was just strength for strength under Project Blueprint, which saw just about every aspect of the car brought into complete hom- homogenization. I got that one out eventually. Well, uh, the, well, it is it is my gimmick for me not being able to pronounce anything. So it is uh, it is good to see me finally actually learning. Um, the downside to this was the actual the lack of varieties in the car themselves and the lack of the direction in the sport for the future. As an ever-changing climate in terms of um, racing greener, cheaper, and more appealing international. So... From when we had the days in the 80s of the different formulas, every car was running with their own gear. It was running with a uh, with a Ford engine, or it was running with a Jaguar engine, or it was running with a Nissan engine. As we got further into V8 supercars, everything became more of a control component. Even tyres, where we used to have the likes of Bridgestone, Dunlop, Yokohama, all became down to everybody racing on the same tyre. So Dunlop. Dunlop obviously have it now, and they and they are the control t- tire for V8 supercars currently. But it it came down to where we used to have that variety, and it, we used to be coming down to who could make the best things to win. They took that element out of it, and it, and it almost become it almost became a cookie cutter um, racing where everything behind the scenes was the same. It was just the the panels on the car that were different. Yeah, absolutely, and. Yeah, you, know, you get to a point. I think it was when they had the, I think it was the VI, the VY Commodore against the BA Falcon when Marcus Ambrose really um, took it to the, took it to HRT. And really, when you look at the two cars, there would be two things to be, you'd be able to be able to use to distinguish one car from the other. It was the grill on the front and the wing at the back. Apart from that, the car was almost exactly the same. You're trying to not my VY Commodore again, aren't you? The VY Commodore was a good was a good car, but you got to remember, Thank like you. the BA Falcon, the BA Fal- you got to remember the BA Falcon when compared to the previous car, the AU Falcon Ugh. was leaps and bounds. But they it both looks, looked, looks alone, Ugh. but but the Ugh. car was actually performed a hell of a lot better. But this is what I'm talking about: the cars were so similar, and you know it got to the point where it's just like, well, really, it's you know, what's the point of the manufacturer really being there? And it really just became almost symbolism in terms of the way that the the that the brands were being represented. Yeah, well, with all that in mind, um, and with Mark Scaife at the helm of, of the working group, CAMS aimed to bring the V8 Supercar Series into a position where it could compete against the likes of the DTM, which is the German Touring Car Champions, and NASCAR in America by changing the rules to allow for the cars of the future, allowing the likes of Nissan, Mercedes-Benz, and Volvo to enter teams. While Nissan and Mercedes-Benz struggled, Volvo actually did manage to develop a car that was um, pretty quick and it was pretty good in the hands of Scotty McLaughlin, but um, it was very unreliable. However, the recent changes plus the re- plus um, the return of the Ford Mustang means that they said the experiment was, was sort of here and there. But at the end of the day, we saw the likes of Holden, Mercedes, Benz, and Volvo come in, but they didn't last very long, and we were, we were suddenly back to Ford v Holden. And it was, it was a shame because you know Nissan. Well, go, let's go through the, those three major brands because Nissan 
Nissan threw everything at it, and they actually ended up with a car that, while not nearly as powerful as the as Holden and Ford, was incredibly agile. I, I, well, I'd say on a handling basis, probably handled better than Holden and Ford to start off with. Yeah, it did. I remember one crazy day in in Winton when they when they got. I think they gave them some different fuel for the for the Nissans when they were trying to find that parity. Yeah. Um. That they just as soon as they got a bit more run in those engines, they kicked everyone's ass. But it was just it was just they were just lacking something behind the yeah. scenes just to take them to that next level in line with everyone else. And Mercedes. Yeah, Mercedes Benz, the next one. I I really don't think they they treated it seriously with well, they, uh, just motorsport. Well, Mercedes weren't even they weren't even an official. They weren't like Nissan and Volvo where they were factory teams. It was literally just Betty Clemenko because she ran Mercedes-Benz in the um, GT3 championship, wanting to carry that over to her V8 supercar team. And they paid to have all those body um, panels made. Hmm. And, yeah, so they they didn't have – they had hardly any or, if any, manufacturing sponsorship from – Mercedes-Benz, but boy, that looked cool. They looked, they looked really good. And then he gets a Volvo in the hands of Gar- in the hands of good old Gary Rogers, and boy, that was an, an exciting car to watch, especially with Gar- um, Scott McLaughlin behind the wheel. Well, I think the one thing that was the downturn for Volvo was that they couldn't find anybody to be a good number two driver. They, they tried having the internationals race as his teammate, and they tried the likes of James Moffat, but when they only really could have the one car at the at the front of the field, where a lot of the other teams had both their cars fighting and and could help each other out, it was just um it was just not meant to be, I think, for Volvo. And well, while they had they well, their cars made some great noises with those Volvo engines, but at the end of the day, they just weren't here to last. Yeah, it's, it's such a shame because that could have been the one that could have showed. That could have been the brand that could have showed that, that it was viable to do something like this. Well, I think Nissan, so. to a degree, showed that it was viable. It's just that um, they, they, they were the ones who lasted longer than anybody else. It was just that there was just there was just something missing there. And, and it wasn't going to be something that was going to be overnight to take them into the realms of the Holdens and the Fords. But I think with anything, unless, you're going to, unless they were at the front of the field, it was only going to have a shelf life. And their shelf life, while being longer than... Um, Mercedes and with with um, Volvo just ran its course. Uh, well, especially if you consider that the only way Nissan could have become they, I think they used the wrong chassis and the wrong engine because they based it on the um, the Atlisma where they should have re- Altima and they should have done it um, with the Skyline. They should have allowed the Skyline to return. Well, they should have, but I th- you know what they were trying to do? It was it's gone back to the old win on Sunday race. Uh, Win on Sunday, sell on Monday. They were trying to have a car that was going to be um, promoted and and would be something that they could advertise and use it as an advertisement to try and sell cars. They probably thought that they'd be able to sell more of those family sedan-type cars than trying to sell more of a niche car than the Skyline. Whether they could go back and change that going forward, I don't know, but... That's just brought us to the end of segment two, where we had a look at um, the evolution of the V8 supercars. That takes us to where, where to next? Where, where to next for the championship? Where, ne- where to next for motor racing and, and motor manufacturing as a whole? 
So make sure you stay tuned here to Splinters on Triple H or on your podcast. We'll be right back. Welcome back to segment three here on Splinters, Triple H 100.1 FM, triplehfm.com.au. All those good and bad podcast sites, including podcast.com. I am the wise man, Matt Mears. I'm joined by the Raging Bull, Anthony Caruso. We are talking about the current landscape of supercars racing in Australia. We've we've gone through the demise of Holden as a brand and the ever-changing face of the the V8 Supercars Championship. Now, now Anthony, we're looking at the future and... Uh, it's one of those ones where you you like to have an idea of where you're going to the future, but even going into next season, we don't know what the landscape's going to like look like for the Supercars Championship. Well, absolutely. So the the first major announcement that occurred was uh, at the start was at the very start of the year, pretty much in line with the announcement that Holden were going to be retired as a brand uh, and involved Walkinshaw and Dretti United. Well, they, they, they were the former HRT, um, Holden Racing Team, before Holden moved their sponsorship over to Triple Eight Racing, the Red Bull cars, and they became Red Bull Holden Racing Team. Um, so they were pretty adamant. I think they've been looking at, at getting in different manufacturers from the get-go, but having to continue as Holden until that could happen. But when you've got Ryan Walkinshaw teaming up with the Andrew, with Mario, with, with um. Michael, the, and, Michael Andretti, yeah, yeah. And, and United being Zach Brown, who is um, one of the owners of the McLaren F1 team and the McLaren motor car company. Within those, within that, within that base of people, there's a lot of manufacturer support there. And I said, with Chas Mostert being in, in one of their cars now, they're, they're going to be racy again. They've been towards the bottom of the um, championship, but... They're looking like they're going to get racing again. I think they could be one of the ones to pull a manufacturer out of left field that we're not thinking about. Well, look at all you need to do is look at who they've got for the um, for their links in terms of the engines that they would use. So, I mean, in IndyCar they use Honda, Indy Lights they're using Mazda, and in Formula E they're using BMW. So, you know, take your pick who you use. Well, that's it, and and as I said, you'd love to see any of those um, manufacturers come into the Supercars um, Championship. Um, but then, yeah, with Zach Brown and his links that he's got as well, and and the Walkinshaw name is is iconic in racing as well. So that's a that's a watch this space with um with WAU. I'm sure they're gonna they're gonna come out firing next year. They'll probably be one of the first ones to announce what they'll be doing in 2021 because they've probably been doing this a bit longer than everyone else as well. But you've got also got the likes of Brad Jones Racing, Erebus Motorsport, who we know are the offshoot from Stone Brothers, once taken over from by Betty Clemenko, and um, and the Triple Eight Engineering Red Bull. They've also they've um, said that they've had to continue running the Commodore um, just to just just because of the situation that they find themselves in not being able to replace those cars um, in such short of a time frame. Well, absolutely. But then you've got – here's the problem is that you've got the jury still out on the on the, on the four teams in particular, and this is where I think this could get really ugly in terms of the, the churn that we're going to see in the, the Supercar Championship. Well, yeah. So you, you've got Tim Blanchard Racing – 
they are they are a satellite team to Brad Jones Racing, so you'd you'd have to think that wherever Brad Jones does next year, they would follow. Yep, uh, Shercolts Racing. So Team Eighteen, uh, Frosty Witterbottom and um, Scott Pye, uh, a formidable team there. That was their first year as a two two team. Um, a two-team operation after getting one of those um, excess um, wrecks from Kelly Racing when they downsized from four to two cars. Um, it would be interesting to see what, what they could do. Obviously, Charlie Schoekholt, he, he has a lot to do in more of the um, sort of heavy, more heavier machinery. So you, you would not be, think that he'd be able to bring any of those manufacturers across to supercars. Now, then you've got um, – the funny – the interesting one I think is going to happen is Team Sydney, which, of course, is the old techno autosports because they've actually got a very close relationship with Mercedes-Benz. Could we see Mercedes-Benz return to the fold? That would be an interesting one, more particularly because of Team Sydney. It said it was a it was a struggle for them to even make the grid in the first place. They were they, – it was a rush job to get them on the grid – um, they barely had their cars confirmed before the Adelaide race. Um, all the things that have gone on with James Courtney now replaced by Alex Davidson. Um, I, I, I think that'd be, be it, it, obviously they've been well talked up with the partnership with the New South Wales government. They wanting a team based in Sydney, all the promise of all the, um, the, the workshops and everything building, building out at Sydney Motorsport part at, park at Eastern Creek, but uh, they've got a lot of things to go. I, I still think that finding a new manufacturer and then having to change all their cars for a new manufacturer, probably just a little bit of a bridge too far. I think you will see them in Commodores at least for next year. And then the the one I'm, I'm sort of curious about, because this is a great unknown, will be <laughs> the Matt Stone racing, of course. Uh, Matt Stone, of course, son of um, former co-owner of Stone Brothers Racing, Jim Stone, they purchased the Rex from the 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 old Rex from Gary Rogers Motorsport, and they also picked up the wreck from the women's driving slot, which was held by um, Simone Silvestra from uh, Kelly Racing. Simone de Silvestro, yeah. yes. So they're they're all new one, and they've got the uh, the iconic, um, I think they call it the Super Light, where they have um, one of the Kisteckis and Zane Goddard essentially sharing a race seat throughout the season. So they're always one to keep an eye on just because of how new they are to the, to the sport. If, if you were one of those, if you were trying to be sort of a more of a trendier car brand, if there is such a thing and try to get through V8 supercars and, and promote your brand that way, they'd be a team that you could target to be in that sort of outside type of um, space and not be conformist, for lack of a better word. But you would still think that, that with with how things are going at the moment, at least for next year, they'd have to continue in the Commodores. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, obviously, as you know, you know we, we see teams come and go, but you know there was one that was very sad to see. Well, Gary Rogers Motorsport pulling out, obviously, with... Um, the rising costs of production, um, especially with Holden pulling out, pulling out their support of the team, they'd be they they announced that yeah they would sell off their X and they would be focusing on the the new TCR touring car series. And um, for this year, they've run um, two cars, two Renault Megans, um, 
as well as also running two Alfa Romeos as well, and a Peugeot. So this is looking like they've sort of gone back into the racing of the good old days of the of the 80s, where they can run all these different manufacturers. Well, this one is an interesting one here because uh, Gary Rogers Motorsport have actually teamed up with Renault Sport GRM. So that's where the two Renault Megans have come from. But Gary Rogers have actually retained outright ownership of two other wrecks for the Australian Touring Car Series. The Peugeot 308, which has been driven by Aaron Campbell, um, with a lot of people, uh, quite a few people, the casual racing fan in Australia probably won't know a lot of, but they'll know of this one. That Alfa Romeo Giulietta Veloce has been driven by one Michael Caruso. And we must mention, as we are obligated to do, it is no relation to you. Absolutely no relation to me. <laughs> we are, that is a court order. We have to we have to uh, mention that any time we mention his name. Um, and unfortunately, although he couldn't, of course, he, although he couldn't join the show, he will be listening in intently to this. And so <laughs> we do have to give a, a cheerio to Michael. Um, but look, I've seen a couple of his races in that Alfa Romeo as a, as an Alfa tragic. Uh, it is beautiful to see it be, see an Alfa Romeo racing again in its true form in the touring car series, and it, it, that that Juliette has actually been quite competitive so far. Well, it is another alternative. It is it is almost like we're getting back to having the the Super Tours versus the V8s type of thing. So if it's, if they can continue to expand as they are the the TCR series. Versus the V8s, particularly if they're going to be in a bit of trouble with manufacturers, maybe we could be looking at having a bit of that that rivalry that we saw back in the 90s, and that can only be good for motorsport here in Australia. But as said, with that with that loss of such an iconic team already, a second to follow, it does put competition in question. Unless GM are able to stump up support, possibly with the use of the Chevy badge, for the future. The future viability of, this, of the supercar series could be in ex- severe jeopardy unless new options are found around to expand the coverage of cars competing in the competition. I said, if we compare the competition with its European equivalent, which we've mentioned before is the German DTM, the com- competition took time off to work out how they would work in the future with the intention to bring its cost down and encourage a variety of competitors. This did work with... Audi, BMW, Mercedes, Volkswagen, and Volvo, all competing at various stages, along with wildcard wild entries from Lexus, Nissan, and Honda, following the announcement of the competition changing to turbocharged V4s, meaning that the cost of car production um, was significantly reduced. So it's shown that overseas it can work, but that's probably more because they're, they're – that is their heartland. When we rattled off all those car manufacturers just then, they are, they're German. They're, they're sold all in that region where in Australia, yes, they have a foothold. They do have a, they do have a base. It's not really, supercars really isn't their target market to be selling um, cars to. Well, I would almost say that the closest market you could go with would uh, could almost be Japan even. And, the, the, of course, we know the Japanese touring car series can be quite ferocious in the, in the, um, in the competition of the, ra- of the racing cars that compete in that. We only need to look at the likes of Toyota when they rolled out their, their Supra. Obviously, Nissan's Skyline, which is you know, a perennial competitor. But then you had the likes of Honda when they raced their um, – you remember the here, – here's one for you. You remember the old Honda NXS? Yeah. The, the Japanese Ferrari? Yes. Like that was back when Ant and Senna was even contributing. That that thing was a monster. 
Oh, definitely. And and yeah, it was quick, but it was it was it was the Japanese Ferrari. It was um, it was just a car that that was just pure speed. Yeah, and then you had the likes of um, Mazda, who were highly competitive, especially when you remember the time when they had the Mazda seven eight seven B, which was really an incredible car, and the use of the Wankel engine was innovative. We all love a good Wankel. It is a very – yeah, we all love a very good Wankel. <laughs> um, and you've got a um, – and then you even had the likes of Korean companies, you know, poking around as to whether they would compete in some of the lower grades, especially the likes of, say, Suzuki or Hyundai. So it, it's really about you know, how do you – put cars within a particular market where it's going to be competitive. We've seen Toyota sales maintain. We know Mazda now is the biggest brand in Australia at the moment, and that's been off the back of the smaller cars, the likes of the Mazda 3 uh, and the Mazda 2. So the idea of the big lumbering V8 these days, to be honest, I think it's dead. And we need to rethink how we do it, and maybe the idea of a – you know, moving to either a two-liter series like they've done with the World Touring Car Championship now, or in Japan where the formula is a turbocharged V6. I'll tell you what, a turbocharged V6 competition could produce some pretty awesome racing in its own right. Well, they are looking at that Gen 3 blueprint at the moment when we said we had Car of the Future. Then we had the the, the, the Series 2, which saw the manufacturers come in. And now they're looking at Gen 3, whether they can have – so the Mustang is is essentially a two car body on the sh- on the shell of a four door car. There is look at having it so that it can so the chassis does inc- does encompass a two a two door shape. There's so many options for for supercars at the moment of where they can take the series, but there is that gap in the worldwide for a class CA comp petition that would encompass both the supercar championship and the german d dtm i said there is the world car touring car top which you mentioned before which runs that two liter formula which is almost like the the tcr cars that we mentioned earlier and it is very competitive because it is those small little cars that you see out and about more than the big muscly cars that the people just don't sort of have these days so i said to have a, an international closed wheel c- competition at the next level would just produce some entertaining racing, but it would require support of the FIA, which may see running a competition like this that it could cannibalise F1. But if you had German DTM and supercars team up to sort of have a hybrid or maybe even like a Gaelic football AFL type system where they might not be completely crossover. But at the end of the day, if we wanted to invite DTM to come and join us at Bathurst, they could race against each other. I think that's the road that supercars need to go down. They Rather than pulling away like they have for so long and trying to be something different, I think this is the perfect time where they need to be sort of teaming up again and really going down the path of being able to look overseas and, and have some commonality. Well, this is, you got to remember, this is going back to when DTM said, you know what, stop, we need, to, we need a reset, we need to start again. And really, CAMs haven't done that. They've, they've tried to just milk the TV money as long as possible. And as long as that kept going, they still, had a, they still felt they had a product. 
they don't have it anymore. And until they acknowledge it and start realising that, you know, something needs to change and maybe that it takes a year for them to think it all up again, they're going to make the same mistakes. But the problem is it is that TV money. No matter what's going on at the moment, it is still the premier Australian motorsport. There's nothing that there's nothing that can rival it for, for, for TV viewers, for, for even sponsorship support at this current stage. So they're probably thinking to take a year off and to give a leg up to, say, to TCR or even the, the Formula 5000 cars that we're seeing starting to become popular really just would put them at a, at a detriment when they come back. But I I still think that there is not an easy fix, but something that could be done where, as you say, that from a particular point in time, next year we're going to go and look at running something similar to the DTM cars. And then all that data, all that all those parts would be available somewhere in the world. So it wouldn't be hard for, for teams to change over. And it might, and it would bring those new manufacturers into the sport. And as I said, it leads up to something like a Gaelic football AFL type crossover where we can see them maybe compete against each other, say maybe at Bathurst and then maybe at the Nürburgring. Can you imagine something like that? Oh, wow. The, the North Shore, the North Shore circuit at the Nürburgring would be amazing. See, I'm an ideas man. That's why I'm here. But could, you imagine, imagine could you imagine them, them at Spa? Could you imagine them at Spa? You can imagine them anywhere. Well, you you yeah. saw in the E-Series that, that, that they ran at Spa in that, and it was brilliant. They would, it, would, it would be great. I just think that sometimes I think with, they can just be a bit too closed-minded and want to do their own thing when if, this, the, if they expand their minds a little bit, the options are limitless. Absolutely. Well, I think that brings us to the end of a very thought-provoking edition here on Splinters. We might not have we might not have solved all the problems of supercars, but maybe we've been able to give them uh, um, an option or two. I'm sure Caruso. As soon as this comes out, you're going to be emailing a copy to uh, Sean Steamer, the the CEO, and uh, maybe we can come on board as a couple of consultants or something to. Um, to, to help with the future of supercars. I reckon we could. Yeah, let's get let's do that, I reckon. I reckon we should, but thank you very much, Anthony. I'm sure you'll be back on Splinters um, in the coming weeks. I've got a I've got one cooking up very soon. It's gonna be involving uh, a for, potentially involving a former A League referee. Well, mate, we look forward to that. You've been doing some great stuff here. It's been a pleasure to sort of come in and do a fly-in episode of Splinters. I've been sort of concentrating more on the bench on Friday nights lately, but I'll never forget my little baby in Splinters, um, and it's been great to be back. So thank you very much, Caruso. For Anthony the Bull Caruso, I am the wise man, Matt Mears. Make sure you tune in next week for... Another great episode of Splinters. Make sure you keep tuning into Sunday Live and the Bench on Friday nights, all here on Triple H 100.1 FM. And until then, goodbye. goodbye.